Father, we praise you this morning and give you thanks that the depths of your truth are unfathomable. No matter how much we study them, no matter how much we pursue the depths of what you have for us, even in this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it just keeps going and going. And we praise you, Father, for it. And we ask you now, Father, to give us insight and understanding into your truth. We pray, Father, that your name would be praised in it and glorified as we think about how these things apply to us and how we need to change. Oh, Father, be glorified in our time now. And pray, Father, for my own heart that you would speak to me. And, Father, I pray that that would be the prayer of every person here, not that they wish someone else was here to hear this, these truths, but rather that we would consider our own hearts and pray that you would search us and to reveal anything in us that needs to change for your glory, Father, and for our own joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our study of 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, the love chapter, as it's called. Let there be no doubt it is not easy to love in a manner that's consistent with the Word of God. That's not how we're raised. It's not what the culture and our society teaches us. None of us are by nature good at loving other people. Some of us may be more merciful than others, yes, but none of us are particularly good at loving other people. Before we were born again, it wasn't even possible because nothing inside of us was motivated by a love for God. And so we could never love in a way that pleased him. But now that we have been given a new heart, a new nature, we have the capacity to love one another. We have the capacity to love one another as Christ loved us. We have the capacity to love one another biblically. Whether you're a married person and the person that you're struggling to love is the one you're married to, or whether the person that you're uh, struggling to love is a person in your office, or maybe it's a sibling, or maybe it's a family member outside of your home, it really doesn't matter. I mean, some people may be easier to love than others, certainly. But overcoming your own selfishness and, and relating to people in a biblical manner, that's hard. That's hard, especially when the other person is being unloving toward you. But now that we have been given a new heart, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And as we've been learning, loving one another from the heart, according to the word of God, is the secret of making an impact on the world in which we live. And we're always looking for a new technique, a new strategy to make an impact on the world, to find a sense of significance in this life. And I guess those things aren't bad, as long as they're directed in a biblical manner. But beloved, the foundation of it all is simply learning to love one another the way God calls us to love. And so then the question, what is love? To love is to give whatever I have that you need because God wants me to. And what does love look like in practical terms? Well, Paul tells us in this text, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and here's what it says. You can follow along in your Bible. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, 
does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now today we need to consider what Paul means by these words, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. What is that all about? And how do we bring that to bear on our lives? Well, on the one hand, just looking at the verses here, on the one hand, we have unrighteousness. On the other hand, we have truth. Paul wants us to know that love is something that knows when it's time to rejoice and when it's time to refrain from rejoicing. And it's relative to either unrighteousness or truth. So once again, we discover that love is something that is often active and engaged, and at other times it is passive. It is intentionally passive and restrained. There are times when love will laugh and sing and exercise unhindered boldness in our rejoicing, and that should be the case when we come together to worship God. I'm not saying we get all crazy. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, Paul will say in the next chapter here. But it does mean that we should allow ourselves to express joy in the glory of our God as we sing these truths together week after week. It should do something to us. And sometimes it ought to be reflected in our posture and what we do with our hands and what we do with our faces and with our eyes. It ought to have an effect on us. That's why we sing. That's why we don't only engage in reading the text. We also sing the truth of the text. God designed it that way because there's something about singing and singing together that ignites the fire of that truth in our hearts. And so there are times when we are called to love, when our love will cause us to laugh and sing and exercise boldness in our rejoicing. And yet there are times when love will be quiet and still as it exercises restraint over impulses to do otherwise, even when other people are laughing and carrying on all around us. So how do we know when it's appropriate to rejoice and when it's appropriate to refrain from rejoicing? How do we know what love for God and other people requires at any given moment? How will you know after the service is over? I hope you're not tempted to give way to laughing with one another in the middle of the service, unless I say something funny, which is rare. <laughs> but, um, but sometime today, you are going to be tested to determine whether or not you are engaged in loving people and loving God as you should. How do we know what love for God and love for others requires in any given moment? This is a question I think Paul answers in this phrase. And so there are two parts to it. And if you're taking notes, this is number one. Number one, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It's interesting to me that Paul begins by emphasizing the kind of love that exercises restraint. Paul begins by talking about a restraining kind of love. As Americans, we, we tend to be a chipper people. We tend to laugh and get loud in our happiness. 
And so it might strike us as strange when Paul, that Paul would begin here by emphasizing restraint. In fact, when I travel internationally, uh, one of the things that when we take a group from Calvary, one of the things we hammer again and again is when we get into the former Soviet Union, you got to restrain your propensity for unrestrained laughter and joy. I mean, uh, flight attendants always tell us, you can always tell who the Americans are on the plane. They tend to be silly and loud and happy. The happy part is great. But we have a propensity in our culture just to express it all the time and sometimes in the most inappropriate ways and in the inappropriate settings. So we might think it's strange that Paul would begin by exercising or telling us that, we, that love exercises restraint. Um, why would he do that? Why would he start here? Well, it seems to me that the reason he emphasizes first restraint is because sinners like you and me have a propensity toward rejoicing over the wrong things. And we tend to rejoice over the wrong things. The word rejoice here means to be joyful. We could have guessed that. To be glad, to be delighted in something, or to find pleasure in something. Even as believers, we're often tempted to find pleasure in the wrong things. And we tout at that, in those moments, we have freedom in Christ, which we certainly do, but it's not to be used as a motive for the flesh. Often we're tempted to laugh at things or find pleasure in things that, frankly, God considers unrighteous. And maybe a, just a practical way to, to kind of get a feel for when it's appropriate to laugh or when it's appropriate to view a certain kind of entertainment or engage in a certain conversation is to ask yourself, would I take Christ with me to see this movie? I mean, if we were hanging out, if, if I were one of the 12 and we had some downtime, when I'd say, hey, let's go down to the uh, Caesarea Philippi Theater and watch whatever movie. Jesus, you coming? Would you invite him? Would you invite him? There are people, there have been people in my life, and I hope in your life as well, that you know them and you think of them as people who walk so closely with God that, uh, that you're a little bit introspective, maybe a lot introspective, when you think of that person coming into your home or the possibility of them kind of going with you where you go, or engaging in conversation with you. I know there are people in my life, when, when I get around them, I, I have an impulse to talk. And there are other people, when I get near them, all I want to do is be quiet. All I want to do is listen. I think that would be the case if Jesus were here with us bodily this morning. If he were to climb into your car and go home with you today, would you do everything that you had planned to do today? Or would some changes be made? Because there are things about his holiness, there are aspects about his holiness that would have a direct transformative influence on your choices today. Often we're tempted to laugh or find pleasure in things that frankly God considers unrighteous. For example, when a coworker tells an off-color joke, do we laugh? 
When someone exposes the faults of another for no redeeming purpose, do we listen intently, expectantly? Do we contribute, pile on, slander, gossip? When a scene in a movie proves to be unexpectedly immoral or evil, do we secretly delight in it? Are we teaching our children to delight in such things by our entertainment choices? When someone you don't like expresses a setback, experiences a setback or a suffering, someone you don't like, do you advertise their misfortune? Do you talk about it for your own gain? When a government official has his sin or his foolishness exposed, do we rejoice? Do we turn on the radio and listen to other people rejoice? and rejoice vicariously through them? You know, I don't know what you think about the current president that we have today, but whether you like him or or not like him, there are imperatives of Scripture that should govern the way we speak about him to one another. When an acquaintance intentionally makes someone else feel uncomfortable or stupid, how do we respond? How do we respond? You see, one of the most powerful dynamics of biblical love is when we refuse to rejoice or take pleasure or delight in the things that God considers unrighteous. And granted, it's going to put you in a position where people might look at you and say, you are a Christian Puritan prude. Just take it. You are not called upon to compromise with the culture in such a way that makes you appear just like them. Listen, if we are exactly like them, then what do we have to offer them that they don't already have? Our lives are supposed to be different in the appropriate ways. Our lives should be very much like them in the appropriate ways. But sometimes we get what's appropriate and what's not all mixed up. And sometimes when someone says, do you remember that scene in that movie? The most powerful thing you can do in that moment to represent Christ is to say, no, I haven't seen that. I haven't watched that. By the way, people who engage in looking at pornography need to understand that when you trace the root to the bottom of that sin, you find a loveless heart. A loveless heart. In other words, you find a heart that does not love God and does not love other people, especially their spouse. What that person loves is the pleasure they extract from unrighteousness. And it's really easy to hammer on the whole pornography thing, but you know what? There are so many Christians who watch videos through Netflix or some other resource, and you're watching things that... If anybody else knew, um, if Jesus were sitting beside you, you'd want to go jump off the roof. Why? Because you may be justifying it in your mind, but the reality is, it is unrighteousness. It is unrighteousness. And to view it without shutting it off when those things happen in those scenes... Um, call it what you will, but it is delighting in unrighteousness. 
It's delighting in unrighteousness. If you're a professing Christian, this is a scary place to be. William Scroggie once said these words, What a man rejoices in is a fair test of his character. What a man rejoices in is a fair test of his character. What do you rejoice in? What do you rejoice in? What is it that turns you on? What is it that makes you happy? What is it that makes you jump up and down or laugh? You see, the true biblical love has a restraining quality to it. It has a restraining quality to it. A life lived before God is one that has a restraining effect upon us. It's not absolutely restraining, but it does restrain us from enjoying unrighteousness, or it should. It refuses to take pleasure in things that it believes God considers unrighteous. No matter what the culture thinks, no matter what our family thinks, no matter what our friends think, no matter what other believers may think. Listen, in a church this size, there's going to be a variety of standards that people hold to. And you know what? Some of them aren't good. Some of those standards may be justified according to our freedom in Christ, but they are in reality unrighteous. What does love require of you? I mean, when you begin to understand what love really is, that becomes a really relevant question. When you're having a conversation with uh, someone else in the body, let's say you're a wife and you're meeting with some other women, and you hear one of the other women, and praise God, my understanding is from talking with uh, the women and hearing testimony that this is a very rare, rare, rare thing at Calvary Bible Church but not rare in the Christian community in general. When a wife comes and starts complaining about her husband, what do you do? Do you jump in and say, oh yeah, my husband does that too? That's rejoicing in unrighteousness. What that woman really needs is for you to come beside her and say, sweetie, you know I love you, but that's not love. What you just did toward your husband, he doesn't know about it. That's not loving. That's not loving God. That's not trusting him. That's not going about dealing with sin. If it is sin in a biblical manner, that's not love. You're not loving your husband and you're not loving God. And the reason that I'm being so bold to tell you that is because I love you. And men, there are so many ways, especially on the job, for you to engage in rejoicing in unrighteousness when you're with the guys you're working with. And a lot of it is not good. It's not good. I think I've told you the story but before, but I remember one time when I was in seminary, I was sitting with some fellow students of mine, some friends of mine. We were taking a break. I think it was lunchtime. And uh, we were carrying on a conversation, and we were in one of those American moments where we were just giddy and loud and laughing and carrying on, and, and I don't even remember what the issue was. And one of us, one of us in the middle of that unrestrained, laugh, unrestrained laughter I kind of threw out an off-color joke, and most of us found it quite funny. But one of the brothers looked at the person who said it and asked, what is there about my life that makes you think that I would find such a comment humorous? And he said it in a way that made us all think, what is it about his life? There is nothing about his life 
This is, of the five of us sitting at the table, this was, this was the godliest among us. And you know what? He felt like he was compromising just sitting with the rest of us. In that moment, the rest of us had a difficult time liking the guy. But we all walked away respecting him and wishing that our character was as Christ-like as his. And you know how I know that? Because it's one of my few seminary experiences that I actually remember. It's one of those moments where God spoke to me outside of the class in such a powerful way that here I am, uh, how many years, 15, 20 years later, and I still remember that lesson. I suspect this kind of love for God and love for people, the kind that does not rejoice in unrighteousness, is called for most often in two areas. Number one, in our entertainment choices, and number two, our conversation choices. The things we talk about and the things by which we choose to entertain ourselves. In other words, often love requires us to make tough decisions about what we choose to watch, listen to, read, on the one hand, and the kind of conversations we participate in on the other. What are your conversations like when you're talking on the phone and you're at home and nobody else hears except the other person on your line, on the, uh, on the line, your best friend? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Now, most of you met Pastor Jim, who was here a few weeks ago. He was the guy that mentored me and uh, was a senior pastor of this church before me. And uh, I've often, often told Brent and the elders, uh, there's such a re- redeeming quality about my friendship with him When I call him, it doesn't take 60 seconds for him to have me in the scriptures. I've known him ever since I was 19 years old. And this has always been the case. You can't talk to the guy without him taking you to some text. And you don't feel like you're being taken to a text. He's just sharing the the most wonderful thing that he'd experienced that week. And it had something to do with God in Christ found in Scripture. And I long for that in my life. More of that, more of that, more of that. Because his life has a, such a profound effect upon my life. And I want my life to have a profound effect on other people's lives. But it's not going to happen through compromise. It's going to happen as I love people the way God wants me to love them. And part of the, one of the elements of that kind of biblical love is restraint. It's not always appropriate to say what you feel. Sometimes when you're in a discussion with your husband or your wife, you just, you just say stuff that's so hurtful. And you say, well, I'm just being honest. Please don't. Because you're sinning in your honesty. Love restrains itself. Love sometimes doesn't say what it really wants to say, or let's do it like this, what would really give you pleasure or relief if you could just get it off your chest. That's inappropriate. To do that without any regard to whether God's going to be glorified and whether that person's going to be helped. Is it going to help them in their sanctification? You say, well, God uses all trials for sanctification. Well, try not to be the trial. Don't you be the trial. 
You be the influence of love on that person's life. And if you have to point out sin, do it the right way. If sharing how you feel actually helps the other person, then by all means, share it. Don't restrain it. But this is the kind of decisions that love requires. You see that? This is the kind of decisions that love requires of us. And I think the problem is, so many times, we're just kind of floating through life. We float through our conversations. We throw through our, float through our entertainment choices. We float through decisions about how we dress and how we talk. And it just doesn't matter to us. And we might even say, listen, it just doesn't matter. It matters to God. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Making an impact on the world around us for the glory of God will not happen simply by passively taking in everything as it comes. We need to evaluate what's coming. We need to make choices, and occasionally we need to take a stand, occasionally. And please don't be Martin Luther about every little thing. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Ah, you're going to wear people out. Don't be like that. But from time to time, you're going to have to take a stand. And we need to make choices, and occasionally we need to take a stand. And sometimes we need to turn off the movie. Sometimes we need to throw the book in the trash. Sometimes we need to switch off the radio. Sometimes we need to redirect the conversation and perhaps exhort a brother who has just led you in the wrong direction. And do it with a smile, and do it with love, and do it with compassion. Why? Because this is what love requires. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. That's number one. But there's another aspect of love in this phrase. First of all, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But secondly, love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Now, we need to be careful here not, uh, to not allow ourselves to think that true biblical love is dispassionate and stoic. Um, it's one of the, the criticisms that the charismatic church has against the rest of evangelicalism, especially reformed people, you know, the frozen chosen. Um, because even the things that should, should bring to life the dead, bring dead things to life, I mean, even that, we don't allow it to move us because we're so afraid of being um, charismatic. We're so afraid that someone might think we're we're, uh, we're one of those kinds of people, please. Really? I mean, yeah, there's some serious theological issues we need to think about. But lack of zeal or too much zeal, that's not one of them. That's not one of them. At least too much zeal is not a problem in our church. If there's anything that, that we lack, perhaps, it is zeal for the glory of God in our worship it needs to be measured, yes. It needs to be thought about, yes. But perhaps a little less restrained than it is. I mean, you go to a ball game. I've seen some of you at ball games. And you get really, really excited. I've seen a few of you at like a Christian concert or conference, and you get really, really excited. But we come here and we sing, and you're like, you know, stoic, dispassionate. Why is that? Why is that? That's not what love calls for. Love does not call us to be dispassionate or stoic. To the contrary, love is often extravagant. It is often an extravagant thing. 
We're called not only to believe the truth, but to rejoice in the truth. Now, we need to understand here that truth, what, what is truth here? And some of you are saying, yes, doctrine. Well, okay, um, that's usually the case in Scripture when they're talking about truth. But we've got to understand the context here. Whatever truth is in this, in this particular verse, it is the opposite of unrighteousness. You see that? Love um, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Whatever truth is, it's the opposite of unrighteousness. He's making a, a, a comparison, a contrast between what is true and what is unrighteous. And so rejoicing in the truth means that we get excited about the things that are righteous, that we find pleasure in things that are righteous, things that are good, things that God gets excited about. Those are the things that really turn us on that ignite the flame and the passion of our hearts. And we, we need to be so careful of this because I think so many of us, when we go to the Word of God, we expect it to be a very didactic, um, theological moment. And sometimes it, that's appropriate. And there are other times when we should respond to the word of God like David responded to it or like Job responded to it. Job who said, I loved your word more than my necessary food. And David says in Psalm 19, which we're starting to memorize this week, we haven't mentioned that yet, but I hope you'll begin starting um, to memorize this with us, Psalm 19. But at the end of it, he says um, that the word of God is sweeter than honey out of the honeycomb. It is sweet to me. It satisfies my soul. It satisfies my desire, my hunger to be satisfied. We love sweet things. And what David is saying is, there is nothing sweeter to me than the word of God. Rejoicing in the truth means and we get excited about the things that are good, the things that God loves. When someone repents and becomes a child of God, do you go, yeah, I remember when, when I did that. Where someone comes for baptism, are we bored by that? When someone repents and becomes a child of God, that should pro provoke all manner of rejoicing in us. There ought to be some backslapping, some handshaking, some singing, some praying, some card writing, some gift sending. There ought to be some, some kind of expression of praise to God and love for that person. When a baby is born, that should be a big event for us. Listen, I know we have a lot of babies. We had two born last week and one this week. It's happening all the time. Great. Don't ever let it become just another thing that happens. The birth of a baby is a glorious thing. We need to be rejoicing with those parents, excited about what God is doing in their lives. When we hear that a brother or sister has been disciplined by the church and has repented, we should respond with gladness and joy, not gossip. 
when you're playing volleyball or ultimate frisbee or baseball and someone on the other team makes an amazing play, you shouldn't kick your helmet across the field. Something inside of you should say, that was good. That was good. You should go congratulate that person. You say, well, they're not on my team. Come on. What does love require? If you're going to make an impact on this world, you've got to be different. You've got to be biblical. Sharing a meal with your family should be a time of rejoicing in God's goodness and grace. It should never be an occasion, are you listening, children? It should never be an occasion for complaining, no matter what's being served. Brussels sprouts were created by God. Broccoli was created by God. God loves broccoli. I've had some things on the mission field. I wonder if God had any part in, but... (laughs) When you see a beautiful sunset, I mean, one thing about being in a drought, we get beautiful sunsets. There aren't any clouds. And sometimes there's dust in the air. And I mean, you choke on it and everything. That's true, but, (laughs) but it does glorious things for the sunset. When you're riding down the road, you're listening to the radio, you're, you're jabbering with your kids or with your spouse or whatever, just turn it off for a second. Look at that. That's glorious. Rejoice in that. Don't take it for granted. And when you see, and whether it's a beautiful sense, sunset or if there ever is a day when it actually rains in Texas, we should rejoice in the rain. Rejoice in the rain. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord, right? Rejoice in the Lord. And so we should rejoice in everything that pleases him. Everything that pleases him. How's your love this morning? How's your love for God? How is your love for other people? Would you say more often than not that you rejoice in unrighteousness or does unrighteousness make you cringe with a holy discomfort? And one of the things that attracted me to my wife is she is so sensitive to things that sometimes I'm unsensitive to relative to righteousness and unrighteousness. And she can spot it. She feels it long before I do. Maybe it had something to do with growing up in New Jersey for me. I don't know. But I so love that about her. I appreciate that so much about her. She can see it coming long before I see it. Praise God for that. How's your love this morning? Are you known as one who is pretty stoic when it comes to responding to righteous things? Or do the good things that God loves really light your fire? Would you say more often than not that you rejoice in unrighteousness? Or does unrighteousness make you cringe with holy discomfort? Let me tell you a story that you all kind of know. It was unlike any day anyone had in this small village in Israel had ever experienced. Everyone knew the scandalous story about the local nobleman's son who had taken his inheritance early and went out to squander it on parties and loose living. Last anyone had heard of him, he was penniless, friendless, and living with a family of Gentiles on their farm, taking his meals with the herd of pigs. No surprise there. Everyone figured he would hit bottom sooner or later. In fact, truth be told, most of the village was hoping that his life would end in shame. I mean, after all, isn't that what he deserved? 
It was a strange thing, though, that the man this boy had shamed the most, his father, refused to say a negative word about his son, ever. After having his own name dragged through the mud as he did, you would think that the man would at least say something to defend his honor, but no. Instead, the father's only concern seemed to be that that someday he would find his son home alive. In fact, if you look closely, you could find him every evening standing on his roof, looking toward the hills over which his son had disappeared so many months before. Frankly, no one ever expected to see the events of this day. No one thought they would ever occur It was early afternoon, and the midday break had just ended. The workmen were headed back to the fields when suddenly a cry went out, Call the master! Call the master! Tell him to bring the rod! The prodigal son has returned! Could it be that the master's son had actually come home? We all expected the master of the house to respond with an air of indifference. I mean, he would put on his robe, he would sit at his desk and continue his work, and act as if nothing significant was happening. After all, his son should be considered dead. That's what you do with prodigal children who reject their faith and leave their fathers in shame. Eventually, they thought the boy would arrive at the house and a crowd would gather and the master would calmly approach with a noble stride, standing over the boy to pass judgment. But this isn't at all what happened. To the contrary... When word reached the master, he was still half undressed for the midday respite. And when he heard that his boy had come over the hill on his own two feet, he left his robe behind, girded up his loins like a schoolboy, and ran. Ran across his estate, ran out into the fields. I mean, the shock of seeing the master run anywhere was enough to draw a crowd. And as he came closer to his son, you could hear the boy calling out something about being unworthy to be called his son. And then the boy suddenly disappeared in the overwhelming embrace of his weeping father who was saying, you're alive, you're alive, my son, praise God, is alive. They embraced and wept together for the longest time. And with all the commotion of the village Talking and yelling in confusion, it was difficult to know what was being said between them. But just then, the master stepped back with the biggest smile I've ever seen and began to call out orders. Bring my best robe and get a pair of shoes. Get my signet ring and put it on his hand. Strike up the band and kill the fatted calf. We're having ribs tonight. For this, my son was dead. and He is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. What an amazing night that was. The music, the food, the laughter, the joy. Talk about rejoicing. My, oh, my. But not everyone was happy. Not everyone. And that became abundantly apparent when the boy's older brother came home from the fields that evening. He heard the music, smelled the food, saw the joy on people's faces. But he was not happy. In fact, when he heard that the party, what the party was all about, he became angry. In fact, he was so angry, he wouldn't even enter the house. 
And after a while, the master must have been told that the older brother was standing outside because he left the party to go out and speak with him. What's wrong, son? What's wrong? What's wrong, the boy replied. Look, all these years I have served you faithfully. I never disobeyed a single command, but you never gave me so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And to this the master said, Son, you've always been with me. And everything that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Behold a father who understood what it means to love. He rejoiced in the truth. He rejoiced in what was good. And behold, a son who would only have rejoiced if his brother had been found dead. Beloved, let's be honest with ourselves. Which of these two are more like me? Which of these two are you most like? The father who, motivated by love, was willing to rejoice in what was good even though he had been personally harmed by his son or the older brother who, motivated by selfish desires, was, would only rejoice if he got his own way. Romans 12, 9, Paul the apostle writes this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. What a man rejoices in is a good test of his character. Love hates what is evil and rejoices in what God considers good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, there is much to consider here, much for us to learn, much for us to evaluate about our lives. Father, if you were to come into my house today, would you find unrighteousness? If you were to listen to my conversations today, would you hear a lack of love, a rejoicing in unrighteousness? If you were to come into this church today and stand out at the playground or in the nursery or in Sunday school, would you find love that rejoices in the truth? Father, I pray that you would give us a heart that like David desires more than anything for you to search our hearts to root out any wickedness in us, not to congratulate us, ourselves, that, that we are somehow better than other people. But are we like Jesus yet? 
Do we love the things that he loves? Do we hate the things that he hates? Do we laugh where he would laugh? Do we take a stand where he would take a stand? Do we love like that? Do we love you? Do we love one another like that? Oh, Father, we would be a loving people. We desire to be loving families, loving parents, loving children, a loving church. But, oh, Father, we have so much to learn about love. Teach us, Lord, and change us, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus.